Welcome to Be There Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Lily and Jake. So, where have we been? How long? So, we got. Last thing we posted was St. Patrick, right? Yes. That was in March. Yes. And then you promised that there would be an episode up before the end of the month, which even generously construed to be April was a couple months ago. Yes, and actually we did record it. Yeah. For his before his feast. It. Yeah. We recorded the beat episode right before, but that was destroyed somehow. Who knows how? So here's what happened. First of all, personal update, I guess. Um, around April-ish, the, you know what, started to hit the fan. So our daughter, um, she got really sick with bad fevers for like a week or two. Then she has a seizure. We end up going to the ER, stay there really late at night. Um, then, I mean, this doesn't sound that bad, but then I got the poison ivy really bad and lost mm-hmm. like a month of sleep. And somehow we managed during an interlude in all of this to actually record the beat episode in like early May. And we were like, we'll get this posted by May 25th, beats feast day. It'll be easy. Then we edit it. We pretty much are going to like add in music, do final touches and upload it when we find that the file was like corrupt or something and it's just the whole episode was gone so we lost like that hour conversation or whatever which i thought had gone well and then at that point our will to live was pretty low and we decided you know we were going to kind of give ourselves a break anyway after the beat episode just for like a month or two and we ended up just needing that anyway for personal time yeah i think well and then i think the truth of the matter is is that we haven't announced it on the oh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> but we found out we're expecting number three, and I do not function, and I need sleep, and... That's understandable. It's been rough. Yeah. So, yeah. So research just kind of stalled out, and the attempts to re-record this sort of stalled out. But now, here we are. It is July, so we're only like six weeks later, past Beats Feast Day, which was May 25th. Okay. I think so, it's pretty terrible, but still. Meh. Um, He's still sort of a summertime saint. Magus May is in spring, but... I know. You're a Houston person. You don't understand seasons. I mean, it's basically either summer or winter in Houston. It's not, it's not even winter in Houston. You just need a nice sweater. It's either hurricane season or it's not, basically. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Anyway... So, last episode we ended with St. Patrick, and that was like the year 461 when he dies, right? Grand tradition. So now, with Bede, who we're going to talk about this episode, St. Bede the Venerable, or Venerable Bede, we're going to be at the end of the 7th century, beginning of the 8th century. So we're like 200 years later, give or take. And he's he's famous for being a historian of kind of the period in between when the Anglo-Saxons move in to Britain and then convert to Christianity and start creating an English church there, which kind of combines Irish and Roman customs. I'm not going to lie, this type of history kind of is a, a little trickier for me just because I like my facts and, um... Yeah, I don't like speculation. 
Well, thanks or to be possibilities. Yeah, we help starting. We help yes. start to narrow things down, years down, and pin down events. And that was like a big part of his career. Was no, it's chronology. it's true. I am thankful somebody started it. It was a good idea. Yeah. Instead of yeah flailing around and I, mean, I don't. Th- in fairness to Patrick, I think that he. I don't know if he knew what a giant void his letters would be standing in, like where we wouldn't be able to identify places, names, anything. So I don't think he saw himself as being a historian. Now, Reed is a professional historian and talks about how much he loves doing that multiple times. But I guess we should uh, kind of get into it. So just, so again, the rehash, the time period here is going to be at about 200 years after St. Patrick. And after this episode, I think we're going to leave the British Isles for a while. Because I know we've been focusing on that for three episodes now. Yeah. Accidentally. I, I personally don't know anything about any of the British saints, so... Well, now you do. Yes, I do. <laughs> so, we're going to start out the episode, you know, now that we've oriented you in Anglo-Saxon England. We're going to go kind of go through Bede's life up until he writes... His really famous work is called The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Can I ask you to kind of give us a background of where the rest of the world is at this point in time? Like, what's happening um so the roman empire has already fallen yeah so if you remember in saint patrick episode rome traditionally is said to have fallen was it like 40 so 406 i think on new year's eve the rhine freezes and the barbarians cross in the gaul and then i think at 410 rome gets sacked by the visigoths maybe it's 409 i think it's 410 and you know meanwhile patrick's gotten kidnapped and you know there's barbarians all over the place and barbarians are just going to be these all these germanic and sometimes celtic people in the british isles who are you know taking advantage of the withdrawal of all these roman soldiers into the the mediterranean heartland to fight civil wars and fight off coups and um you know generally to just revolt against not being paid so the roman empire is collapsing at least in the west in the east there's still a byzantine empire and there's still a byzantine empire it's during four, Bede's yeah, time. It's 410. yeah so 410 is the fall of rome so by the time Bede is alive some of these barbarians anglo-saxon or saxons is what they called them back then but those angles saxons jutes different tribes move in and they may have started out as mercenaries or just people that were brought in to help shore up the, the roman yeah British but i just want to set I, yeah i just want to set up the time that like yeah. at this time but what else is going on is islam is now spread in the 600s it's already Bede's spread time, yeah islam has left the arabian peninsula i think and it's starting to hit the byzantine empire and north africa it has already by this time yeah it's, like and it's probably hit it's spain by this by this time as well i I'm, I'm not pretty sure, because I studied the history of Spain class, remember? It maybe is. I'm not sure. Um, but Islam's on the rise. Byzantine Empire still exists. Viking attacks have not started yet. That's going to happen after Bede's lifetime by a few decades. So I think uh, Lindisfarne and Bede's monastery, Jero, get attacked by Vikings like um, a couple decades after he dies. So that's kind of what's going on in the world. No, you're right. Spain Spain doesn't get hit till the end of Bede's right. life. Right. Okay. The end of Bede's so that's what I kind of thought, because in the generation before Bede, the founder of his monastery is going to go around Europe several times, I guess safely, 
gathering books and information for how to run a monastery and bring it back to England, yeah. which is newly converted at this point. So basically at this point in time, like there is chaos, I guess, for the Western Hemisphere. Well, there would be, there is, but the church is kind of the one institution that is holding firm. So in the generation Well, that's why, the, I mean, that's why they, they were able to hold after Rome was sacked. Right. So there's, there remains the authority of the Bishop of Rome and all of the local bishops um, in Gaul. For example, you remember it was where Patrick probably went mm-hmm. or may have gone to study. And and Bede talks about bishops coming from Gaul to help out the British church during its struggles with Pelagianism. And I guess probably it's just general kind of collapse as the non-Christian Angles and Saxons move in. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's just the background of what's happening. Yeah. So. so there's still a church. There's not much of a Western Empire left. There's an Eastern Empire. Islam's on the rise. But Europe is at this point kind of in an awkward interlude between one barbarian invasion and and what's going to happen next, which is Islam from the south and Vikings from the north. And yeah. So that's where we're at. Um, now we're going to go through Beat's life, kind of just by the years and kind of give a sketch of who he was and then we'll talk about his really famous work the ecclesiastical history of english of the english people which he writes pretty much at the end of his life and then um, unpack that a little bit really quickly not like dwelling too much on it and then we'll talk about how he died and some of his legacy i guess i think yeah we should talk about his legacy okay so in about 673 and we can get specific because Bede tries to give us some information about his life's chronology. So Bede is born is about 673. He's from northern England, near the border with Scotland, and, and what he knew as the kingdom of Northumbria. And Would you say it's like Manchester country? Manchester? I'm not sure where Manchester is. I'm not good at... Well, he was ordained by the Bishop of York, so I think York's York, a pretty big yeah. city. Yeah, York I have no idea where Manchester is. Is it somewhere else? It is. Mm-hmm. So he's born up in northern England. And England at this point is divided into multiple different smaller kingdoms, as well as there's non-English people still, the British or Britons, who are living in what is now Wales and Cornwall and, and even kind of beyond that. And then north of Beat, there's Picts, who are another Celtic people, as well as Irish people over in the northwestern part of what is Scotland Scotland now. And now in 674, right after Bede's born, like I said, per, member of the later or the earlier generation, Benedict Biscop, is going to found a monastery pretty close to where Bede lives called Weirmouth, which is at the mouth of the River Weir. And that's St. Peter's Church or St. Peter's Monastery. And 680, when Bede's just a seven-year-old, He's going to be entrusted by his family to the Weirmouth Monastery for his education. It's called being an oblate. And then we we talked about this that uh, his family must have been a well-to-do family. Yeah, I think there's order. and there's a theory I read in one of our sources or one of our essays that we we're looking at that pointed out that the names Bis or Benedict Biscop or Biscop I think and Bede show up in a, like a royal family tree of like a smaller kingdom, and it's not these two guys, but it it showed that maybe. Their families, these were names that were like common in, in some sort of noble family that might have been connected to each other. Um, and definitely they would have been able to like spare a son for a fancy education in Latin. Because at this point, it's not necessarily, you know, he wasn't necessarily being 
chosen to be a monk he, or a priest. He just was probably being sent there for his education. But then maybe as he grew up, he probably thrived because he ended up being a great scholar and monk. And 681, it's kind of a sister monastery of Jero or St. Paul's is going to be founded by a member of this uh, Weirmouth community. And they're going to stay connected. They're basically two parts of the same monastery community. It's going to be founded by a guy named Kale Frith, who's sent out from Weirmouth by Benedict Biscop to start up this new new house. Bede probably goes with Kale Frith to this this new monastery because we we know that Bede and and Kale Frith had a close connection for the rest of Bede's life or the rest of Kale Frith's life at least. And there's an anecdote from Bede's history of the abbots that he writes later that says that there was a plague that hits the Jero house. And only Kale Frith and a small boy were left, like, able-bodied enough to sing the, or to chant the psalms in the chapel. And the tradition is that that was Bede and, and Kale Frith. They were the only ones who were sort of left standing, not necessarily the only ones who survived, but, you know, that they kind of come through this crisis together. And anyway, in 692, Bede's ordained a deacon at age 19, and at by 702, when he's 30, he's going to be ordained a priest. And not every monk back then had to become a priest, but Bede was apparently felt called to both vocations. And he's going to be ordained by Bishop John of York, who is somebody who he talks about at the end of his ecclesiastical history. And I guess I want to talk about a little bit just at this point the, the, the chanting and kind of what Weirmouth and Jarrow, how it was different than maybe its surrounding monasteries. If that's that sound good? Yeah, I was just waiting for you. <laughs> so in like the 680s, Benedict Biscop had been going, and not just in the 680s, but all, I think six times Benedict goes to um, Rome and travels around Europe and Italy gathering books for the their, what's going to be their really great library that they have at Weirmouth and Gerald for purposes of scholarship. And he also brings back the archcantor of St. Peter's in Rome, whose name is John, to teach them Gregorian chant. So the influence of Rome and kind of this Gregorian tradition of like, of scholarship and and study and everything is coming to this monastery. And at the same time, though, there's they're surrounded by Irish influence, which is also really a great influence, but is sort of at odds with some Roman traditions that Bede's going to discuss in his history. And that's so he, he's coming from a place that's very strongly oriented towards the the center of the church in, in Rome. But at, in about 703, he's going to start writing his first works, and um, he's going to become, in his own lifetime and afterwards, really famous as a biblical commentator. And that's what really most of his reputation and scholarship was on, even though now he's famous as a historian. And in 710... Kaelfrith writes a letter to the Picts about the proper celebration of Easter. And that sounds like a strange thing to mention. Remember that the Picts are Scottish? Yes. What is now Scotland? Yeah. Um, Though in Bede's time, if you're talking about the Scotty, you would have been referring pretty much only to Irish people. That's what he always calls the Irish, is the Scotty. I don't know. But one of the points of contention between the Irish tradition and Roman tradition is how do you celebrate Easter? Like, how do you calculate when it should fall? So should you celebrate it on Holy Thursday, which is, like, traditionally the Passover? During, you know, a certain full moon, there's all kinds of considerations that go into calculating it. Or should you go to the next Sunday after a certain point? 
it all gets really complicated and contentious and it, it kind of played into like different cultural divisions too. So there were like two different camps that had all kinds of distinctive little practices and features. And probably Bede works on this letter with Kale Frith or for him. And he includes it in his ecclesiastical history. And 716, Kale Frith leaves Jarrow for Rome and he dies on the way of, of his pilgrimage. He seems to be intended to actually go there and to not come back. And maybe that was for some unknown political reason. Maybe he just wanted so badly to kind of go and die among the apostles' tombs. He was also old. <laughs> I guess he was, I mean, he was old, but he... For I'm, that time, yeah, because he was, I mean... I don't know how old Kaelforth was, but he must have been at least, this is already 40 plus years after yeah. B joins the community, so I assume he's... Yeah, I mean, I guess that is probably pretty old for back then. But he, he dies, and Bede actually seems to have really grieved for him, because he even mentions in his... One of, he's working on biblical commentary at a time on, um, I think, first book of Samuel, and he talks about Samuel being entrusted to the priest by his mother, and he compares himself to Samuel, and he compares the priest who becomes Samuel's father, basically, as to, to Caelfrith. So there's clearly, you know, close relationship, kind of almost like father-son there. Oh, I forgot. One thing that was really important about Caelfrith is that he took with them a book that Bede probably worked on called the Codex Amiatinus. And you can see pictures of it online, but it's a one-volume Bible, which would have been really kind of like a, a grand, expensive, scholarly achievement for the day, and it, taking it, it as a gift. If you wanted to see something kind of similar, like to kind of show your kid, but kids like The Secret of Kells, right? That movie Oh yeah. would be a good... It's a movie, it's an animated movie about monks. I mean, it, it's, it's supposed on. to be in Ireland, but like it does show the monks working on... Yeah, it's supposed to show them working on the Book of Kells and um, or other illuminated manuscripts. And this is like that. It's a you know, it's a, a big manuscript version of the Bible. Um, and it ends up in I think it's in Florence now. But um, it was a Which what's in Florence though? The codex that, that Kale Frith took oh, with right. him to give it as a gift to the Pope, basically. Yep. So that still exists. Other there's other book, books too that be literally worked on as a copyist or as a writer that are still in existence too, probably. Also, it's kind of like the inspiration for your artwork. For the yeah. For our our podcast is it's supposed to be like an illuminated manuscript letter, mm-hmm. and it's all supposed to be be working on one mm-hmm. in the in the picture. So I thought that was cool that there's still, even though this is from supposedly the Dark Ages, you know, we still have these actual manuscripts yeah, from B. We got to see those in our honeymoon, didn't we? We saw some like manuscripts. Some manuscripts and not that yeah. specific. Right. I think the ones we saw are from a lot much later in the Middle Ages. I don't know if I've ever seen one this old from like the seven hundreds. But in um so that's seven sixteen. Bede continues working, um, and kind of the culmination of his scholarly work is the ecclesiastical history of the English people, which is in he completes in seven thirty one. So I imagine in the years leading up to that, he's been corresponding with people all over England and doing a lot of research. He doesn't seem to have ever left England or maybe even not even Northumbria. He talks about in his autobiographical note at the end of the book that he spent his entire life at Jarrow. Well, I mean, in the history also is more of Northumbria. It doesn't really talk about 
it's definitely really important to his view. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it becomes kind of a Northumbrian story about like the Irish influence versus the Roman influence because those things kind of collide there. But I'm going to go through, try to just like sum that up really fast. Well, okay. So you want to cut into the ecclesiastical history or do you want to go? Or just, you want to continue kind of to the end of his life? Just continue to the end of his We're life. We're almost there anyway. 734, he writes a letter to Bishop Egbert of Northumbria, who is, I think, a younger a younger clergyman. Um, and maybe Bede is sort of speaking as like a disinterested elder priest of the, the diocese to this guy, telling him about the problems he sees and what he thinks should happen in the church. And then at 735, Bede dies on May 25th after he had some sort of illness where he was having breathing problems. And we can talk a little bit more about that, I think, at the end of the episode. With his legacy. Yeah. Um, So anyway, the ecclesiastical history, completed pretty much at the end of his life, it's... I will warn you guys, it's... uh, It's not an easy read. It's not an easy read. (laughs) Especially because there's not a coherent consistency kind of... And some, ins- like, the chapters are, in general, yes, but within each story he'll talk about. From chapter to chapter and book to book, it is sometimes, you can't, it's easy to lose the thread. Yes. It was for me. <laughs> At times. Yeah. I would say, I, sometimes I think he's relying so much on his sources that it's, you know, he's not condensing it into his own narrative all the time, so you do lose the thread at that point when he's like, I'm just going to give you these five letters that Pope Gregory wrote that I've got sent. And that's good. He preserved those things. But then you come back from that having, you know, you have to reorient yourself. But it describes basically book one. It gives like early history of Britain and how it becomes Christianized. And then after the Anglo-Saxons come, how the Pope sends a missionary named Augustine, not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo. This is Augustine of Canterbury, as he becomes known, because he's bishop there. He comes and converts the king of Kent, whose name is Ethelbert. And it also includes, at that point, a lot of letters by by Gregory the Great, the the pope who Bede kind of gives credit for converting England. Book two describes how Christianity leaves Kent, which is on the far south uh, southeast of England, and goes to Bede's the rest of England, but especially Northumbria, where Bede's going to be from, through Bishop Paulinus. And King Edwin converts, but then he gets killed in battle by this sort of villain of the middle part of the book named Pinda and uh, his British Christian allies. So Christianity has to start over again, basically, in, in Northumbria. Book three, that's when that, that kind of reboot happens. And a king that Bede likes a lot named Oswald who was in exile up with the Irish, he invites an Irish bishop to come and, and preach, who's going to be really famous, Bishop Aidan. And uh, they are able to start re-Christianizing Northumbria. And that sets up sort of, again, this collision course between Irish and Roman customs, because you've got the Roman-Italian mission down coming up from the south and Irish coming down from Iona in Scotland and Ireland. Then in book four, Bishop Theodore, who's Greek, I think, shows up, um, sent by the Pope to organize the English church. And they, they're they really kind of concerned with um, establishing like Roman customs throughout, Engl- throughout the English church. And also just kind of consolidating things 
politically as far as like organizing a diocese in a sensible way and, and cutting down on other practices that were harmful. And then in book five, he turns his attention back to Northumbria again. He talks about some of his contemporaries like Bishop John, Bishop Wilfred, who helps kind of solidify Roman practices in, in Northumbria. Did you talk about book four? Yeah, Bishop Theodore. Okay. There's a lot of other people in book four that are... Actually, book four is really interesting, but it's kind of so episodic sometimes that it doesn't... It's not like those people fit into the bigger narrative, mm-hmm. but it's still kind of worth reading. Like, there's a lot of people who be talks about, like, this poet, um, Kaidman, who... Or Kaidman, or Kaidman, I don't know how you say it. But there's a lot of people like that who nobody would really know about if Bede hadn't preserved their stories. But again, it's sort of hard to fit them into the overall church history narrative. Mm-hmm. In book five, though, he, he sort of wraps things up, and that's where he includes that letter from Calefrith. And it's sort of symbolic of like how him and, and Calefrith and the Northumbrians, all of them help solidify this like more united church that's practicing Christianity the correct way in Bede's view, and it's been purged of sort of these potential heresies. And that's the ecclesiastical history. There's a lot of other random stuff in there, though. Like, a there lot. There is. But it's it's in, it's really worthwhile, I think, at least to have some familiarity with it, because there's so many gritty, ground-level, cool stories no, that I, I think... No, and I think that's where then we can start talking about his legacy. And so... Um, I will say, though, that... I, I So apparently the consensus is that Bede sort of gives a rosy glasses view of the English church. And I think, but isn't it also argued that the reason why is because he lived in a time period of peace as to where the right. the history that he's describing is very chaotic, like somebody's taking over somebody at some point. Yeah, that's true. So Bede's looking back a few decades on an era of chaos. You know, I mean, because like Edwin gets killed in battle, Oswald gets killed in battle. Um, all these kings are getting like... I mean, there are people getting assassinated. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of reorganizations of kingdoms going on. Like, Northumbria had been two different kingdoms before it got merged. And Oswald had been in exile because Edwin wanted to kill him. And so, yeah, Bede's looking back and kind of trying to make things a little bit... make sense out of out of the chaos. And I think that maybe that unintentionally could also contribute to that but i think he also didn't want to rub old wounds by talking about how everybody seems to have thought that if you were practicing the irish customs maybe you were a secret like pelagian which it, so pelagius had been a british priest probably or clergyman and there's apparently there still was like a association of like well maybe pelagianism still around in the british church maybe that's why these guys have their own practices so he kind of tones down some of that in the history i think but he does have he's genuinely respectful of like bishop aiden yeah i I mean Cuthbert, who was a bishop of lindisfarne well like the people he was upset about he kind of like you can't really tell he was like you know it's not like me in traffic yeah he's not like thomas moore where when he goes into attack mode he's gonna suddenly become like rabid yeah. Bede's a little bit more civilized. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. St. Well, Thomas More. St. Thomas More was also a lawyer, so. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe 
or barrister or whatever you want to I have no idea. But, yeah. Solicitor. But then in, um, he did write that letter to Bishop Egbert, though, where he talks a little bit more frankly about divisions of the church and how some bishops weren't really preaching and some people, common people, were sometimes still ignorant of, like, basic stuff. And his main concern was Easter, the celebration of Easter, right? Yeah, well, not in that letter, but in the history, Easter, it's all like, and in his career, it seems to be Easter, Easter, Easter all the time. Because that was such a hallmark difference between the two camps. I think Easter's a pretty important holiday for us. Yeah, it is really important when you think about it. Like, if, if one Catholic church was celebrating Easter on one date, and then the other Catholic church was celebrating it on another day, and by the way, they also spoke different languages... And maybe had different politics. I mean, that would be a serious schism. Well, I mean, don't we already do that with the Byzantine Church and stuff? Uh, I mean, I don't think they. I don't think they celebrate a different Easter, do they? I think. Well, Lent, I know, started earlier, isn't it? I don't know. We need to do Does research. It Eastern. On that. I don't know if Eastern Catholic churches do. I don't know. I don't know that. We should look into whether there's any variations of practices still. But in the context of Britain at this point, it would have been, it was almost heretical because of all the associations with different, mm-hmm. you know, different things in their history. Um, but yeah, he loves talking about Easter. And that's one of the things he's remembered for in the Catholic Church is his work kind of pinning down like decisively what the right way to do this was. But he's also, he was concerned in that letter to the bishop about making sure that like ordinary people could understand our father and um the apostles creed and that it was in english well he wanted it translated for them he said that he had translated it for them too and we were talking about how like it seems to have been okay to use a vernacular for that at least i mean i'm sure he wasn't saying the mass in vernacular or anything but so and this is also be looking at it from you know almost 200 300 years of a fallen roman empire yeah i mean fallen roman empire but still a roman centered church and a you I, know yeah i don't I think people that. in western I, europe at the saying, time really thought all i'm saying is no that like the common you know what i mean like yeah the, well the common people in england at least maybe had never spoken latin because they weren't they had never been romanized yeah whereas patrick that was apparently a language he spoke colloquially so i don't know what else did you want to talk about with the history i mean there I was a lot of well, good I stuff we were talking about the legacy i thought you wanted to talk about certain stories in his like as far i mean his all those stories i guess are part of his legacy just because we wouldn't know about that stuff if it wasn't for him yeah um and he has a lot of stories of saints you know foreseeing their own deaths saints who were incorruptible I mean, incorrupt, like, bodies after they died. And he records a lot of, like, popular piety. Um, like, the people... Where, so where King Oswald is killed in battle, that becomes, like, a pilgrimage site. And people come and scoop up little bits of dirt from there and try to use it for cures and, and you know, for miracles because it starts being associated with healing. Yeah, and Jake was really skeptical of this until I told him that in my, at least, you know the area of mexico my family's from that is a thing where there's little um blessed uh not full-on dirt but blessed um earth that 
are uh, given to you that like you it's can like a little yeah dust it's something. well it's um it's hard to explain it is dirt but it's like wet dirt i it's you'd have to okay so it's, yeah is it they sell this to you in like a little glass thing or how's it yeah what's or, it associated with like it's so that it has same. an image of a, of our lady is it so is it from uh like where the vision of the lady of guadalupe was no i or is it, is it i think it's um a site in our area and uh, i don't know the extent of it but but that's a thing that's a thing like where you get these little like domino sized you know pieces and um if you're really ill then you start to eat the dirt slowly apparently this is a very ancient practice because it's i mean and that's what b talks about is people will drink the dirt mixed with water from like where oswald was killed and that's okay i guess (laughs) it's like i I guess that's no weirder than the oil coming from saint nicholas and bari yeah i don't know it's that's it's an unusual sort of well sometimes you and i are too intellectual for our own yeah well i mean it it's the type of thing that i think gets catholics accused of being pretty superstitious about saints and Mm -hmm. relics but at the same time i mean that was the popular level piety like the real christianity of pretty i mean that's is pretty early in the church that he's writing and talking about like there was a real expectation that jesus was going to come back soon still because they're from their perspective like okay the gospel has now been preached to all the nations that we're reaching the end of history and they were very serious about studying the bible Bede spoke i mean could understand greek writing apparently because of bishop theodore and i mean they were really close to the roots of christianity and they were doing this stuff so probably shouldn't look down our nose too much at it well i yeah no you're saying you don't i'm just i struggle with some of the we stuff. both do and certain um though i mean i mean i'm okay i i believe that in christianity you, that the idea of saints relics makes sense because we don't believe that the body is just like a shell like it is the person and it's holy if it's a holy person yeah i think we need to drag this on well but because he then he talks about he talks about incorrupt bodies and one of them is king oswald he says his oh, oh that yeah. story um isn't says, it his arm or something yes <laughs> this is why it's b doesn't help because he, he has a funny way of telling these stories sometimes yes so he has a story where King Oswald was dining with Bishop Aidan. Well, then that's the funny thing, though, is that the his death story isn't isn't like follows right after like oh by the way this body part was incorruptible. It's like many stories later. Oh by the way, let me insert this other side note. I, I mean, it, it's a it's another. He he has a kind of an elliptical way of getting to historic events like the death of a king. But this, one way he rehashed it is this miracle story. And he says that Oswald and Aiden were eating, and they had this silver dish that had food. But then poor people come to the door, and Oswald decides, oh, give them the food on this dish, and then afterwards break up the dish, the silver, and distribute that to them as alms. And Aiden's really moved by this, and grabs Oswald by the arm and says, may this arm never grow old. And Bede then segues out of that and says, and it never did grow old, because when Oswald was killed in battle, his arm was hacked off. <laughs> and it was preserved, 
and corrupt afterwards. But he had already said that he had been killed, so it's just that's yeah. that's funny to me. It's just it's just a strange way of describing an incorrupt relic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I mean I don't mean to make fun of it. It's just it's kind of a funny story. Yeah, I mean it's just it, it's it really is like the beginnings of history writing in yeah and English said, or you know like in the English world because yes we have like historians from the past but it, this yeah. is you know this is a fresh he's I mean he's looking at it as a historian and kind of a more than just a chronicler like he's trying to gather together anecdotes and piece together like a picture of the people and of the period and um, I guess one of his legacies I should mention he talks about how he thinks a historian should like faithfully transmit the traditions of the people like as you hear them mm-hmm. and kind of non-judgmentally um, and at the same time though he, he does like to mention where he's gotten a story or a source and to comment on its reliability so he'll he'll say a lot like I heard this from somebody who was there or knew this person and they can vouch for it so that's kind of an advance in history writing because it you know he's talking about reliability of sources and he's he's not just parroting these stories really credulously but he also tries to be objective and like not you know there's stories that obviously we find kind of outlandish and he tries to just give those respectfully um about all these different saints he talks about i guess his other legacy we've kind of alluded to before is he helps popularize the ad bc system of dating things so anno domini like year of our lord and that advance in chronology really helps the history make a little bit more sense and be a little bit easier Guess to swallow. for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's being able to pin down the order of events, I think it helps. So that's a good accomplishment. Yeah. But I guess we could talk about, now we're at kind of the end of his life, and is there anything else from the history you want to talk about? Not really. Okay. Oh, there was one other thing. It's kind of a connection back to our Day of the Dead episode because um, Pope, he preserves a letter from Pope Gregory to one of the early bishops, Miletus, I think, talking about Gregory doesn't want them to destroy the pagan temples of the Angles and Saxons. He wants them to purge them of all the paganism and then to rededicate them to Christian as Christian churches and to try to also repurpose the pagan holidays as, you know, like if there's a Christian feast day, redirect the people to celebrate something worthwhile. You know, don't just crush their spirits. And uh, so he legitimizes kind of that practice of trying to like gently convert the culture and not just go in and yeah, try to impose full on Roman, you know, only Roman, only Greek Christianity, like only Mediterranean Christianity. He wants them to sort of like those dang Puritans. No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, there is sort of a bulldozing of everything. <laughs> no, I know, I know. That happens later. Um, but like one legacy of this is that Easter, for example, is it's not called. Um, you know, in Spanish, what's it called? Is what? it Pasqua? What Easter? Easter. Yeah, yeah and that's Sorry. related to the original like Passover word. Mm-hmm. But in English and Germanic languages, it's kind of being called Easter because that's when that's the name of the spring time goddess whose holiday was around that time and they're gonna allow that type of thing to slide even though it's a little bit you know if you're going to be really puritanical about it that's pretty questionable but pope gregory decides that sort of thing is 
worthwhile if it helps convert people. Okay, so he dies in 735 on May 25th. Leading up to that, I think he'd been having some breathing problems, and he's in his 60s at this point, so it's it's pretty old for this time period. Really old for that time period. He's been able to kind of escape a lot of hardship in his life. I mean, there was disease, but he's living a pretty peaceful life. Um, up until the end, he's working on books and kind of dictating to scribes. And even, like, right before he dies, he kind of finishes dictating a sentence and finishes a book and says, okay, good, it's done. Um, And that day he had been giving away what he called his treasures, which was, like, some pepper that he had saved and a few handkerchiefs that were, I guess, nice and um, some incense. And he gives that away to his, his brother monks there. And after he finishes dictating this book to his scribe, he asks to be helped over to his little prayer area in his cell. Because, you know, he's got, like, part where he sleeps and part where, I guess, he prays in front of a personal shrine, maybe. And he's seated singing the glory be to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit when he just passes away quietly. Not quietly, but, I mean, peacefully. So that's nice, peaceful death. Well, I mean, he could have been quietly. I guess so. Well, it was... I mean, he was chanting, though. Oh, okay. So, kind of just a simple, nice life. He says in his autobiographical note that he just, he pretty much loved being a scholar, reading and writing, and teaching his whole life, and that's that was his thing. Well, I guess we'll just end now with the prayer that Bede gives at the end of the book, um, just to continue the tradition from uh, the St. Patrick episode of ending with the, the saint's actual prayer. And he says, I pray you, noble Jesus, that as you have graciously granted me joyfully to imbibe the words of your knowledge, so you will also of your bounty grant me to come at length to yourself, the fount of all wisdom, and to dwell in your presence forever. Amen. Okay. So, what are you thinking for next episode? Well... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Depending on how I keep feeling, I don't know. Okay. When we're going to be able to put out the next episode. Yeah, and it's... I mean, the idea of the next one was going to be ambitious anyway, because we thought we were going to take a longer break, which we will take again now. That was going to be on the history of celibacy in kind of the early church. Just because I know that's a controversial topic, but it might be something we have to... Hold off on. Just until I'm ready. No, I know. I think it's going to take a few months. So I don't know. If we have any other ideas that are more modest in the next few months maybe we do something but to do the celibacy episode i think it's going to take a few months and research we have a couple books but i yeah i mean it's going to take some real reading because it's that's a more serious scholarly Mm -hmm. question because of what's happening in the church lately we want to make sure that we give like what's happening in the church (laughs) (laughs) just kidding yeah, with all the scandals and stuff, we thought it would be a like a relevant topic. But we we're going to focus mainly on the early church, right? Like first, I mean, not like early, but I guess first like thousand years or something. Mm-hmm. So I guess look out for that. But otherwise, don't be surprised if we don't do much with the podcast. Well, thank you for joining us, hopefully. Yeah, feel free <laughs> to share this with a friend if you so feel uh, the need to share history. And um, like you can find do. us on our facebook group and instagram but uh not really active these days so Eh, 
we'll maybe we'll get back to it more maybe after this pregnancy. Yeah, after this little little baby's born. Yeah. Or will we? Will we sleep again ever? Nope. Nope. Never again. Okay. Well, speaking of that, good night, everyone. Good night.